0: Welcome to Money Talks. I'm glad you're with me on the Money Talks Canada Day special. You know, and there's no shortage of things to talk about. And I'm going to start with our own country. I'm looking forward to getting the take on the state of the country from one of Canada's legendary entrepreneurs, Peter Brown, member of the Canadian Business Hall of Fame, architect of the most successful independent investment firm in the country, and so much more. I've also got the king of investment seasonality, Don Villalo, to join me. As Bob Dylan wrote, and the birds famously sung, Everything there is a season, and if you want your odds of being successful with gold, silver, oil, and stocks, well, Don's going to give us a helping hand. Plus, I got Ozzy, he's had a big change in sentiment, he'll let you in on. Plus, of course, Victor Adair, a great goofy award, the list goes on. But first, in mid February, a Maru Public Opinion released poll found that 66% of us fear for the future of Canada, 62% say. They've lost faith in the ability of the country to keep peace, order, and good government in place. Maybe more shocking is the finding that a majority of Canadians, 52%, believe the country is, in quotes, beyond broken. It's just not viable in the way it's currently constituted and being governed. Maybe not surprising, given the vilification of the oil patch, for example, or what's going on in Quebec, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. There's nothing unusual about the poll results, though. Just before the pandemic began, an Angus Reid poll found that nearly two-thirds of Canadians, 64%, said politicians can't be trusted. And last September, during the federal election, a Meru Public Opinion poll found 77% of respondents thought Canada was more fractured than ever. Well, you know what? That's hardly a surprise, given the goal of politics is to actually divide the country for political gain. We got lots of examples, but the demonization of the truckers' convoy from the outset, though, not after anything had taken place right away, because it was looked upon as a political advantage, with the government and media allies stoking fear and division. No thought, by the way, of ever bridging that gap or unity. wasn't given a consideration. What about vaccine mandates? Well, you know, there are other examples, but this is a beauty. They were first rejected by the prime minister, who correctly stated in quotes, More extreme measures such as vaccine mandates could have real divisive impacts on community and country. Well, he was correct. But you know what happened in late spring and summer last year? Well, polls suggested that the mandates could actually be a political winner for political advantage. And presto, we had vaccine mandates. And you know what? Just so you're very clear, no federal health agency ever endorsed vaccine mandates as medically necessary. Politically, maybe, but not medically. But here's the kicker. As for the politics, liberal MP, I'm talking a liberal MP, Joel Lightbound, went on record stating, in quotes, from a positive and unifying approach, a decision was made to wedge, to divide, to stigmatize. Think about that. It was a conscious decision for political advantage to wedge, to divide, to stigmatize. Well, it worked. As H.L. Mencken famously stated, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it good and hard. No opportunity has been missed to divide Canadians on all fronts, whether it's based on gender or geography, East versus West, French versus English, rich versus poor, straight versus gay. What about disrespect for people with opposing view, the self-righteous moralizing that basically says, my side's good, all other sides are evil. So here on the Canada Day weekend, you know what? I invite you to reject the politics of division. That's clearly not in the country's best long-term interest. It's the politics of the few at the expense of the many. Canada is not those bad people from the East or bad people from the West. It's not embodied by men versus women or climate advocates versus so-called deniers. It may be in some people's head, but that is not the norm for Canada. Canada is far more accurately reflected in the millions of Canadians, These are our friends and our neighbours who volunteer in our communities. The frontline workers, hey, especially during the early months of the pandemic, when so little was known about the danger they face. Canada is far more accurately reflected by the tens of thousands who are first to lend a hand, helping hand, when wildfires gripped Fort McMurray or Williams Lake or about the flood in Calgary. They don't ask about attitudes on climate change or gender or sexuality or religion before they reach out. And neither do the people who welcome newcomers to Canada and then watch them become major contributors to our country. You know, in Canada, there's much worth celebrating. I'm unapologetic in appreciating my good fortune in being born here. But there, yes, I'm not saying there's not much to reflect on and there's not more to be done, including further steps in reconciling with our First Nations and Métis communities. But I think it's a mistake to not acknowledge the progress that has been made when we choose a path forward and good things for ourselves and our children are far more likely when we're united than divided. You know what? I'm for taking a positive step forward rather than a negative look back. Hey, you know what? During this week, we did the Canada Day poll and uh, you can go online. We'll post all of those things up there. You can have a taste of what Canadians feel. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just for fun. I'll give you an example. This is the result of the poll. We said, help us decide the most successful Canadian comedian, comic actor of all time. And we gave a choice. Jim Carrey, Mike Myers, Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, Eugene Levy. I mean, there could have been others added onto the list. Russell Peters comes immediately to mind, but others. Well, I'll tell you who won out. Well, John Candy just edged out Jim Carrey. Not that they're not all brilliant, but there you go. That's the result. We got to give him few more results as we go through the show plus we'll post them all up and i thank people for participating it's a part of our celebration of canada i appreciate well depends where you're living uh, if you're living out in the west coast you're probably what season it is but i've got my seasonality guy with me don vilo don thanks for taking the time just so you know out in the west coast we think it's winter still or at least late you know early spring because of the weather we get the odd good day and of course i know back east it's been very hot at times so it's been a difference but I appreciate you finding time for us on the Canada Day weekend.
1: Yeah, it's, summer is here, and, and now is the time to become more favorable towards equity markets.
0: Well, there we go. Okay, so let's, let's actually get into specifics on that. Now, wait a second. More favorable toward equity markets? I thought it was the old uh, sell in May and go away and come back after Labor Day.
1: <laughs> well, it turns out uh, that worked many times, but when it comes to the presidential cycle, Uh, The U.S. presidential cycle, it's different. Historically, during U.S. presidential cycle uh, years, the second year of the cycle, you see equity markets both in Canada and the United States
0: bottom right around the middle of the year and go significantly higher right through until the end of the year. Well, that's one that people are going to want to put on their radar right now. you know, as you say, we've had a major correction. I mean, this is this is the broad-based I- market. You're not talking about individual and, and individual stock at this point, but the broad market, as you say. So when we look at something like a seasonal trend, how often, as you say, so the key trend is second year presidential cycle, how often does that sort of play out in that way?
1: Yeah, historically, uh, the records I've been using go back to 1880s. So it's a very long
0: period of time. And it doesn't work
1: every time, but uh, the key is it does work most of the time.
0: And, and, and that's what we're doing. I mean, one of the things, and of course, you do technical analysis too, and this is sort of the cyclical, the seasonal analysis. And what we need is every weapon or every, every arrow in our quiver to try and up our chances of being correct. So when you look at something like that, Don, and you say, okay, this is second year presidential cycle, I, you know, the tendency is to go higher into the end of the year. Where do you go next to verify that or to take action?
1: Yeah, the key is to look at other factors other than seasonality. Uh, you look at uh, fundamentals and technicals. Now, looking at the technicals, there's good reason to believe that U.S. equity markets actually bottomed on uh, June the 17th. We've seen some very good positive technical action from that point on. And the Canadian market is also responding slightly on the upside. So it's coming in right in line with expectations for the seasonality as as well. There's a fundamental reason for it as well. Uh, We've seen the uh, Americans uh, indicate that they're going to be increasing their Fed fund rate. But the key is the market has been anticipating this for a while. And once uh, it was made official, actually on June the 15th, that they actually were going to go through this process, that's when we started to see the market finally reach a fairly important low. And there's a very interesting indicator which gives you uh, kind of a a feel for what's happening there. It's called the um, uh, PCE Price Index. It measures the inflation rate in the United States. It's the key uh, indicator that the Fed uses to determine which direction uh, that the interest rates are going. And they indicated that inflation and interest rates
0: probably peaked sometime around the second, third week in June. Well, cause that's the biggest debate in markets today is, uh, are the feds gonna follow through and try and kill inflation, you know, by continually raising rates? Uh, or is the slowdown in the economy gonna be enough to scare them away from continuing that? Cause if they, if somehow that comes through to the market that they're, we're gonna not follow through on our rate increases or we're gonna slow them down, I think that would be rocket fuel for the market. Yeah,
1: the market's fully anticipated a uh, major
0: uh, uh,
1: problem here. In fact, looking at various indicators, uh, there's one put out by the, American, uh, the Bank of America last week, the Bull and Bear Indi- Index, which shows that the percentage of uh, stock or people expecting markets to go up was zero out of 10, which is the lowest you can possibly get. That's the most bearish indicator you can have. And that indicator was last reached in March of 2000, which means the market is extremely oversold and is due for a nice bounce from current levels.
0: Uh, Let me come to one. Sorry, I I know I'm jumping around, but I can't help but think of the name Don Villo and TimingTheMarket.ca without talking about gasoline because you were the one who introduced me to the gasoline trade so many years ago. And man, talk about a high probability uh, of the gasoline market. So uh, by going into the ETF, their exchange-traded fund, Give us a quick overview of that trade, you know, historically and, and what you think at this moment.
1: Yeah, thank you, Michael. You reminded me of this trade during the uh, conference. And uh, the key is that gasoline prices go higher from early February, normally right through until Memorial Day holiday in the United States, numbers to the end of May. And boy, has this seasonal trade worked out exceptionally well uh, during uh, from early February to early June, the UGA, which is the ETF for gasoline, was up 50%, so a huge gain. Now, we're caution. As of Thursday of this week, UGA completed a classic technical pattern. It's called a reverse head, or it's called a head and shoulders pattern, which means that gasoline prices are going to be heading lower from here on in.
0: Well as and and again UGA is the exchange traded fund for that but the the percentage of times that's worked out is as high as I know of anything you know uh, like it's just been such a a pattern that's repeated itself consistency so would you say at this point you might want to play it uh gas prices to go down or would you go that yeah. far <laughs>
1: Yes, technically, that's what the market is telling us right now. And there's good reason to believe that there's going to be lots of supply of gasoline, particularly in North America, and prices are going to start moving on the
0: downside. Interesting. Uh, as I say, that's one that you brought to my attention years ago. Sorry, I'm skipping around. I know, but I know that the you know our listeners have got specific areas they want to talk about. And another one that your seasonality seems to have been very consistently uh, uh, correct is, is gold and gold shares.
1: Yeah, it was fascinating. During the conference, we mentioned that gold was in its period of seasonal strength, which was right through until the end of February. Uh, Never did we uh, expect that the gold stocks and gold would do what they did. From the beginning of February, when we had the conference, right through until the first week in March, the TSX gold index was up 32%, a huge gain. But that was the end of the period of seasonal strength. Uh, Then, of course, we go into a contraction, contraction period. And the next period of seasonal strength is normally from right around now, right through until the, for the first week of September. I'd like to see some technical confirmation that the uh, gold ETF is actually bottomed, but we're very, very close. And is about the right time to start buying gold and gold stocks once again.
0: Well, people can go and, and look and get your momentary update on that at uh, timingthemarket.ca. But your point being that you look at uh, an, an exchange-traded fund, for example, um XGD, is that one that you like? Yes, that's the clean uh, one that most people
1: in Canada would would invest. If you want to do US, it's GDX or GTXJ. Those are two other ETFs that track the uh, gold stocks.
0: But I mean, and again, it's been a seasonal pattern. And again, I want to emphasize that's me only presenting that side because you do the technical analysis, as you just alluded to, that you want to see a technical confirmation. But it certainly is interesting and one that people can put on their radar screen right now because it seems to me it was your uh, seasonality was very much in, in in alignment with what actually happened in the market uh, and now we got the down that you called for uh, back in the first week of February. So yeah, kind of interesting that this may provide an opportunity. And I know we've got a lot of people uh, listening who want to know what's next on gold. So there you have it. You can just uh, keep following with Don along uh, on that and see when he gets his technical confirmation and uh, then whatever's appropriate for your personal situation, then you can take action. But uh, that's kind of interesting within that. But, and the thing is that, you can look at any, you know, your your work looks at just about any and everything within that. So I'll, I, I got to keep asking you, and uh, hardly a surprise that I want to get your take on oil. Yeah, and crude oil has been another one that's been fascinating. Historically, it moves higher like
1: gasoline right through until around uh, around June of each year, and then at that point in time, has a history of reaching a, a seasonal peak and starts to move lower. It seems to be doing that once again this year.
0: Yeah, and, and what's interesting, of course, is then you look at also with some fundamental news, but it's it's interesting as we're hearing a lot more talk about an economic slowdown. I'll talk I'll chat with Victor Adair about that coming up, you know, that the sort of recession talk takes over and then you get a little bit of softness. So uh, so technically, you would expect this for oil to be a weaker period. Uh, I'm certainly not suggesting selling it, but technically it would be a weaker period and uh, right through to the end of the year. Yeah, that makes good sense. Uh,
1: just a. To... Now's the time to look at different sectors that start to uh, improve uh, going forward. And just by owning the market, particularly sectors that do well at this time of year, things like uh, biotech and technology has historically have done very well between now and November of each year. So there's a couple of sectors to look at.
0: Well, especially after the decline in technology. You know, I mean, if people were saying, I don't want to buy at the top, you're okay now. You're not buying at the top in tech. So, yeah, so another another area you're looking for sort of a more bottoming uh, kind of period. And then, again, on a six-month basis, maybe some strength or less, or three to, three to six months. Well, there's an easy way of doing both of those sectors, by the
1: way. If you look at um, QQQ, which is the uh, NASDAQ 100 uh, in the U.S., Uh, 70% is technology, 15% is is biotech, so just an easy way of playing that whole sector. Or even better, you can play the the same trade in Canadian dollars. There's two Canadian ETFs which uh, do the same thing. One symbol is ZQQ, that's the BMO one, and there's XQQ, which is the uh, iShares one. So you can do it in Canadian dollars as well as U.S.
0: Uh, and let's talk, just, sorry, Don, you know, uh, forgive me. I'm just, boy, I'm the Barbara Walters of finance right now. I'm just firing these questions at you. But I wonder about the Canadian dollar itself. The Canadian dollar has a history of moving higher
1: relative to the U.S. dollar at this point of uh, the uh, year. So if you have a choice between owning Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars, you'd own Canadian dollars right now. And that's why, for example, I suggested the uh the opportunity to go into the QQQs in Canadian dollars instead of US dollars. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, and and just a couple more if you just humor me here. Uh, Silver is one that I've got on my list to ask you today. Because I've been, I'm not surprised, but I certainly observed, I, I thought it got a little weaker than I would have guessed it would. I thought weakness would come, but it got a little weaker than I thought. So I'm wondering if there's any pattern that you can recognize as we go forward here.
1: Yeah, silver and silver stocks have a very similar technical pattern and a seasonal pattern to gold. And so what we're seeing right now is the silver uh, stocks in general have not been doing too well during the last little while. Well, they've yet to show signs of a technical bottom. But we're in the period of seasonal strength between now and uh, early September. So watch closely for an uh, opportunity to see these uh, silver stocks and silver itself reach a very important intermediate low. For a good trade to September,
0: is there any pattern when you look at things? Because it's a lighter market, uh, you know. So I would assume that the more volume you can get, like traditionally, you know, deep markets would give you more data. Um, I'm wondering about uranium. It's a good question.
1: Uh, I've done a little bit of work on uranium and uranium stocks and uranium ETFs. Uh, I guess the one that most people know is URA, which is an ETF of uranium stocks. The biggest uh, stock in, this, uh, in the, uh, that particular ETF, of course, is chemical. It really dominates the ETF itself. So, watching chemical very closely, and it does seem to be starting to show early signs of improvement. On a seasonal basis, historically, the uranium stocks have done well from March right through until, until October of each year. So, it tends to be a bit of a contrary indicator than most other sectors. So, it's something to look at. I haven't looked at it closely during the last couple of days, but something to watch closely.
0: But the big overview, just to reiterate, is this is entering a period of, of seasonal strength in the second year presidential cycle for the broad base of equities. And, and that's sort of your top overlay. Yes, that's the key uh, going forward. Lots of opportunities to be buyers
1: in current market conditions.
0: Well, I'll tell you, Don, every time you're on, I take notes. Uh, because I love to hear it and they can find you. And this is something I do encourage, as you heard Don right off the top say, this is the, the sort of the, the overview when you look at seasonality, then you have to drill down into the technical analysis. And you can do that with Don at timingthemarket.ca, timingthemarket.ca, absolutely momentary updates on what's going on. Don, thank you so much for finding time for us on the Canada Day weekend. Lots of food for thought. Thank you, Michael. Hey, just coming up, I'm looking forward to this. Usually when we talk about the state of Canada, we'll hear from some pundit or some politician. No, not this time. I want to get somebody who's deeply embedded in our business community, our social community. Peter Brown is going to be with me. A rare chance to interview him. Bottom line is, I want to get what he thinks about the state of Canada today. Time now for the quotes of the week and a little something different this week because it's Canada Day, Canada Day weekend. So I've chosen three quotes That I think is just trying to give you a flavor. You can't sum up a country in a quote, but I just thought I'd start with this. It's from World War I veteran Reginald Roy, who states I became a Canadian on Vimy Ridge. We became a nation there in the eyes of the world. It cut across French and English, rich and poor, urban and rural. Vimy Ridge confirmed that we're as good, if not better, than any European power. What an incredible time in 1917, of course, April 1917. But here's another one, a little bit on the more humorous side. This one from the founder of the NDP, Tommy Douglas. Canada's like an old cow. The West feeds it, Ontario and Quebec milk it, and you can well imagine what's going on in the Maritimes. And finally, a brief quote from famed Canadian writer Pierre Burton. A Canadian is someone who knows how to make love in a canoe. Well, there you go. I was going to say, I'm I'm not going to add anything to that one. I don't want to get in trouble here. But uh, as I say, there's so many ways you could sum up our country, but I thought that was kind of fun. Hey, let me give you another couple of results, by the way, Uh, speaking of Canadiana, from our Canada Day survey. We asked the best Canadian everyday invention. A lot of people are surprised that Canadians invented five-pin bowling or the paint roller or the big green garbage bag, snowblower. I mean, there's so many other things, of course. And I'm talking everyday stuff. There's been some very important inventions, and I'll get to that in a moment. But everyday inventions, guess what? Kick butt. Zipper. That's right. Canadian invented the zipper in 1913. As approximately 16 billion zippers are sold every year. It's a monster industry. And of course, it's all thanks to Canada. But what about life-changing Canadian inventions? we will give you that one there quickly, too. Because again, there's so many. We asked about pacemakers and canola and basketball, telephone and insulin. Well, insulin won out big time, actually. But there was many others. People noted other things because I guess it's a long list. Hey, not too bad to be proud to be Canadian when you look at that list. But insulin won that one out. I'll take a break. I got so much more planned for today, including Aussie, including Victor. I'll give you a couple more snippets of this. You're listening to the Money Talk special on the Canada Day weekend. It's the Canada Day weekend, and I've been looking forward to this. You know, we come to this time of year, or this uh, special event, and we get to talk to pundits. So we get to talk to politicians. It's so predictable. I wanted to go different than that and get to someone who's been involved in our community for over 50 years. Uh, the founder and former chair of Canaccord Financials, now Canaccord Genuity, but Peter Brown, under his leadership, built that company to Canada's largest independent investment dealer. He's a member of the Canadian business hall of fame. He's a member of the investment industry hall of fame, mining hall of fame. I could keep going, but you're getting the idea, but he's been active in the community for his entire adult life. Uh, Peter and his wife, Joanne, created the Peter and Joanne Brown Foundation, and they support numerous nonprofits and charitable projects. And I thought his perspective would be very valuable as we sort of assess where we're at as a country at this time. Peter, thanks so much for finding time for us.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure.
0: Let let me start with the big question. Um, When you look at the country today and you look at the direction we're going, is there any one or two things, and we can get to much more detail than this, but just as a broad brush, that's sort of what I call keep you up at night?
2: you know, I, I start with the, like, I guess my grandchildren are sixth generation Canadians, but I, I start with the premise that we are lucky to live in the greatest geography on the planet. We're the second largest, we've got rich in resources, we've got an educated, uh, we've got an educated population, still too small, we're right next to the American market, and they sort of make us feel more secure, and we're, thousands of miles from the squabbles of Europe so and I think when I think right now we're hopelessly mismanaged um, but when we change that doesn't matter what party just we just desperately need to change um, the one thing will still be the best geog- geography in the, in a planet so it's just it's a management failure and the, the, no matter how badly they manage us they can't take that away from us. So that's my starting premise.
0: Let me go a little further into that. If, uh, let me go a little further into that. When you look at, when you say mismanaged, I mean, obviously I focus on the economy and finance. I mean, I can't help myself. And I look at things like, and I just want your take on it, where we've had this incredible nonchalant attitude about the importance of capital investment to the degree that it's sort of the worst in a
2: generation. Oh, it's yeah, it's, um. well, you look at... Um, uh, you know, our, our, if you take our expected GDP growth, for example, uh, yeah. which I think, well, we, well let's do, we want to start with capital investment. The figures are alarming. If you take the business investment in Canada over the past, go from Mulroney on, the past four, past four prime ministers, it, business investment in Canada um, grew at, at 7% up to nine and in, in the in the Trudeau years it's grown at minus 0.9 percent Excluding that's excluding residential structures so capital investment is um has it, just fled the country we're seeing you know we're the we're a country we what what built us you know the St. Lawrence Seaway the railways the the uh, Trans-Canada Pipe none of those projects could could happen today we we're seen as the country that can't do anything, and it's and the, the the we're in a flight of capital between 2014 and this year, 2014 and 2021. We lost 280 billion of lower foreign investment and Canadians investing outside the country. And now you're now the Canadians investing outside the country is over 100 billion a year. So the current numbers are going to be about 325 billion in capital that we've lost which is quite, we, we really are in a flight of capital. And it's that lack of, you know, the lack of capital is important because that's what, when you don't have it, your productivity goes down, right? Well, I'm
0: thinking, I'm thinking jobs, I'm thinking government revenue. I mean, it's yeah. the foundation of economic growth. And <clears throat> I just can't believe how casual we've been about it. And I'm not so sure it's because the public doesn't understand it. The media doesn't understand that connection. And it's
2: not a priority for the government. Clearly, well, it is. I mean, what what we need to do is we need to, well, the number to do. But there, there's some other figures. You know, the our average age in uh, our average change in in GDP per person is now point eight percent is is, and that is lower than any of the past five prime ministers. Of course, the um, and then you get the the you know. Uh, the OECD number, numbers are really frightening. They're, they've gone on a study from 23, this is 38 countries they've ranked from 2020 to 2030. And we're saying that we will be 0.7% growth, which is 38th out of 38. And then we'll, from 2030 to 2060, they're, they're projecting 0.8% growth, which is 38th out of 38. So if you want to believe the OECD numbers, which aren't that far from the Fraser Institute and some of the local numbers. It's so it's sort of showing a very bleak picture for 40 years, you know. The, and and then if you go to if you go to uh, uh, inflation-adjusted capital invest in the country per person during that period, from 2020, 30 to to 2060, we're going to be 31st and 37th in capital investment. You know, we used to be looked at as one of the most favored investment climates in the world. Secure, good return, good country, good laws, good, you know, good protection for investment. And now we're not. We're seen as a, uh, as a country that can't do anything. The
0: implications are
2: huge, though. I mean,
0: whether you're, uh, some individual listening today says, well, my thing's protecting healthcare. My thing is this. None of it happens. I've always been so puzzled by this as I asked who who benefits from a weak economy.
2: But if you go to the business investment per worker uh, today, the Americans' investment per worker is 50,000 per worker. The OECD nations, 38 nations, average about 33,000 a worker. And Canada's investment is ten thousand a worker,
0: and again, that will translate into lower wages. Uh, so many other things, but I'm try- like, it's sort of. I'm trying to address. Uh, I'm, I'm loving to hear this because it addresses the "what's in it for me." Well, when you get higher levels of poverty, uh, productivity, rather, which we've talked about over the years, and nothing's been done, as you say, when you just look at the numbers, the capital investment that's gone into workers in the states, or as you say, the broader picture, versus Canada, our workers are coming out. Uh, you know, at the short end of the stick, and it's not beneficial for them.
2: Well, you can't you can't have productivity increases without capital investment, and we're in a flight of capital right now. It's getting worse. Yeah. So you know what? What the challenges ahead of us are are really the other. The other thing is that it upsets me as a Canadian, Mike, is you know I grew up. I was so proud of being a Canadian, and so was everybody else. We went to Europe and said, "Hey, we're not an American. We're Canadian." The RCMP get their man. We had this national pride. Nobody talks about it anymore. It seems to have just disappeared. And and this is a tough nation to get together. And when you alienate Alberta and you allow Quebec and this language bill to enact creeping, I think what's creeping separatism. And you don't react. I mean, there's no effort to hold this country together. And and so we need. I think we we need to restore our national spirit. Restore ourselves as a favored economic. A favorite economy to invest in, and then we need to stop making a fool of ourselves in international policy. I mean, those are the three things. Uh, let me come back to the Quebec situation because, uh, well,
0: actually, there's lots of ways to, disc- to describe the divisions, as I, I did earlier in the show a little bit, but not in this way. But you look at Quebec. I mean, have you been surprised that they, you know, put the langu- English language bill? Uh, you know, I think it's Bill 96. It comes in the number of people are going to, you know, shrink in English language skills, uh, or schools rather, uh, discriminates against the use of English in Quebec offices. I didn't see any federal party uh, come back after that, saying that's
2: not good for national unity. Trudeau ruled over like a poodle. I mean, he just, (laughs) it was uh, ridiculous. I mean, it's a very, you know, we have a a deal with the the Quebecer. Part of our deal was language would be in 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 federal courts and federally chartered companies, it would be in both official languages. And the non-Quebecer lived up to that at quite a bit of expense to carry it through. For a yeah. for twenty-five percent of the population, it was a very. When we did our share, and now they come and say we're an English-only province. That is such a, and I'm amazed at our media. They this should be a big issue. I think if Trudeau seniors there, he might have sent the troops in. He, uh, but th- th- mm-hmm. they they said and neither of the opposition nobody this is creeping separatism and you know they they turned down the pipeline to take to take um, very huge huge national cost taking taking energy to the to the to maritimes they they received 13 billion in equalization payments which i think will go down now but i mean they they're not acting like a part of canada and we're not showing any leadership to get them back there, and then in the West, they've done everything they can to alienate Alberta. So we've got some national problems that we shouldn't have. Uh, and just uh, just uh, clearing that in Quebec, they said it's a
0: French-only province. That's basically what they're doing. Yeah. Doing. But your your point about the pipeline is also obviously more pertinent or or very pertinent in this time when we do have a, an energy crisis on our hands, and you know. We don't have a pipeline through to the Maritimes. You it's know, my goodness gracious.
2: It leads to other aggravating complications. You can take a tanker up to St. Lawrence with foreign oil, but you can't take one to China from the West. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are all these irritations that eat at Confederation, I think. I
0: I don't want to, you know, put you on the spot and just say you're not sure at this point. But, I mean, you look at the alienation, especially coming out of Alberta, and, uh, you know, it's obvious why. Maybe high oil prices will assuage some of that, you know, because their financial situation has done such an about-face. But, I mean, we have the Quebec, as you say, the way you've described it, but we've also got that East-West divide. And you've got... And it's very difficult in our politics because who are their representatives? I mean, in the government... uh, That's Basically, the, Alberta, for example, doesn't have a
2: representative. But, you know, it's, it's, people don't. Trudeau, said in two elections where he had 32% of the vote, he said he had a mandate. Well, usually when you get 32% of the vote, you start to say, OK. But he didn't. He just kept it up. He doubled down. So if you look at the vote, we have 17 million votes were cast, of which he got roughly five. And four and a half of those came from Toronto, not Ontario. Nine oh five four one six and the stub of Quebec after the blog, and so in the remaining twelve million votes in the rest of Canada, he got a million six, a million six hundred thousand.
3: So wow, here I have got a guy acting
2: as though he has a mandate, supported by uh, Toronto and Quebec to somewhat, with no obligation to the rest of the country or no. It's somehow that's not working. I don't know the answer to it, but you really depend on a leader that gets 30 percent of the vote to adjust his policies, to take into account the concerns of other, you know, once you become prime minister, you're prime minister of all the people. But he didn't. He just stepped with his ideologue and doubled down. When
0: you look out, say, five. you know, like I appreciate what you said right at the outset, but, um, you know, these trends are in place right now. I mean, I worry for, I mean, I don't know how it ends up five years from now, you know, or 10 years from now. I mean, we're on a process that seems to be disintegrating in the country. If not, you know, dissatisfaction is certainly there. You look at every poll, I I alluded to this earlier, you look at every poll basically saying uh, Canadians, in a a strong majority, think we're more, uh, you know, separate than ever, less united than ever. And I just worry where this goes five years out, because I I don't see any sign that all of a sudden... Unless we have a real uh, financial problem, uh, you know, capital investment coming higher on their radar screen. Right now, they seem quite content to, you know,
2: continue the deficit-related spending. So I'm not sure where it all goes. Either am I? I but one thing you mentioned health there for a minute was just, an, it's an indication of the incompetence. If you look at our, um, we the Frasians did some work that was well publicized that um, that they compared our healthcare system to 30 what they called national systems and that doesn't include the us includes you know the netherlands and britain and 30 nations we were the numbers most number two most expensive per capita but on the other side we were number 29 in hospital beds per capita we were 28th in doctors per capita and 26th in mris per capita And only 10 10 of those nations uh, published the figures for waiting lists, but we were 10th. And we right now have the worst waiting list, it's estimated, in the free world. People are dying on our waiting lists.
0: In fact, I think Brian Day wrote an article from the Canby Street Surgery Centre, and Brian's been a, a real, uh, more than an advocate, he's been a hero trying to get better health care for Canadians, 11,000 people dying on the waiting list. We know that upwards of, you know, before COVID, upwards of fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 would leave the country. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm wondering when that gets much higher up
2: on the radar. Here's a more frightening, Out this is also Fraser Institute's work, this is quote the source, but they, they projected that, with no change, that healthcare costs, which are now consume about fifty percent of every province's budget, that healthcare costs between 2022 and 2040, with the aging population, will go up eighty <laughs> percent, which yeah, which means they wouldn't have money for anything else. So it, that can't happen. It'll fall on its own prdard here somewhere. But it's it's a mess. And it, you know, just take the passport thing. You know when you end the down to the closing of the economy that there's gonna be a rush on passports. We've now we've now got people waiting four and six months to get a pass. This government cannot execute anything. The healthcare. I'm so glad you've brought up the
0: healthcare situation because obviously Canadians identify with that and I as I say it, it defies the facts. I know the Commonwealth Index ranked us last out of twelve. Uh, on virtually every category, except for the U.S. would be under us on some of them. But we're always right there, you know, bottom, second to last. As you say, Fraser Institute numbers. I think we're starting to appreciate the health, uh, the, the wait list. Look at the people who suffered uh, during COVID. I mean, just incredible damage being done there. The list just keeps going on and it doesn't seem to change. Uh, the Canadian Health Institute talks about how much money we've thrown into the health care system with no change. In fact, the waiting lists are worse than ever. I think that's the kind of thing that's going to motivate people to look for uh, look for changes.
2: Do you know a little bit what what my long term worry is? is that you know, you start off with a clash between protecting your civil liberties, individual liberties, and the rules that are needed for the um, safety of society, right? And they they sort of a bump against each other. But these governments have got so big today that I don't know how. <laughs> How any elected official can manage them, especially in Canada where we have to take our cabinet ministers out of the elected pot. So you take the woman from Vancouver who's Ministry of Fisheries. The day she's Minister of Fisheries, she's got 7,000 employees. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a, I'm not detracting from her. She's a nice woman, but she doesn't have a clue what to do with that. So who ends up in charge? It ends up the deputy minister who's been there for 20 years. So you get this unelected official calling calling the shots. And I, the government's got, these governments have got so big that it's hard for the elected officials to really contain them and direct them. It's difficult. Not impossible, but difficult. Well, I was going to say that
0: what's also, I mean, that's actually the goal. I mean, the goal is ever bigger government, yeah. uh, certainly from the majority of parties. And they haven't been, you, you listed some and I can throw in others, uh, you know, whether it's look at the passport situation today, but we can talk healthcare. Uh, I mean, the list is a lot defense spending. Uh, I shouldn't be puzzled because I read the auditor general's reports and they send a chill up my spine. Yeah, it's, it's, this is, is why I think it's important for Canadians to stop for a moment, Canada a weekend, and think: Where is this taking us?
2: But Mike, you know, if we, if we find the right guy, if we if we, if we change leadership, which I think the mood of the country is, it's time for a change. I, I think there's no question about that. You can't talk to anybody that isn't discouraged or frustrated, either in both in the U.S. and Canada. But if you find the right guy, part of it is anticipation. If you, if, if you get the government that the people have confidence in and have an agenda that is to pull the country back together, to restore economic, they will give that government a chance. They know it's not going to be done overnight. But actually, things will improve slightly almost right away. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 they just need a relief from this oppressive ideologue management that really doesn't seem to care about holding the nation together and our national pride. And I think I think if we can get the change, which I think we're going to, uh, get the right change, then you need somebody that not only that can defeat these guys, but somebody that has the guts to make the changes because it's not easy. Absolutely. Yeah, but, absolutely. But if we got there, I think people would go back to where we started at, thinking we're lucky to be in the best geography on the planet.
0: Well, Peter, it's been a pleasure getting a chance to chat with you. And I'm sure at the Peter and Joanne Brown Foundation, you got lots of work to do because of the nonprofits and charity projects you support. But we appreciate you finding time and wish you all the best, and especially on this Canada Day weekend.
2: Okay, well, happy Canada Day.
0: Take care. Well, i got to bring Michael Levy in, and I'm happy he's working on the Canada Day weekend, by the way. Michael, tell me what's on your mind. What's trending for you?
4: Well, Mike, I read just a heck of a column comparing uh, governments uh, back to Jean Chrétien when he first came into office in 1993 and doing some comparison to the uh, government now uh, and uh, where they are. Uh, Chrétien came in and uh, he came in on a wave of he wanted to spend health care, education, clamoring for investment, every department in government. Uh, needed money, and away they went. They thought it was going to be rosy times. And about a year into his mandate, Mike, as government does to raise money, they go to the bond market and try and sell Government of Canada bonds. And guess what? Nobody wanted to buy them. I'm not exaggerating. There was no bid. Uh, Like, Mike, what gives with something like that?
0: Well, I'm glad you're bringing it up because I think this is a huge key um, first of all, I've been critical of the sort of the economic analysis that failed to understand when you have a debt situation, let's say, or the buildup of debt we've had. It's always going to take place in the credit market. If there's a problem, it's a credit market problem. The other thing you're bringing up, which is important, is people really have to understand the Bank of Canada doesn't set interest rates. You know, and they cannot force you, Mike, to buy a government bond. Now, the government then has to lure you in with interest rates. So, you know, what happened in the pandemic, of course, we had the government, uh, you know, the central bank and the government working together. That's how they kept interest rates. Real. Wasn't the public buying a 10-year bond at 1%? No, it was the Bank of Canada essentially doing that. I mean, there's mechanisms I won't go into, but essentially doing that. And that story you're telling us just reminds us, because I think what the danger is. What happens if there's no buyers? I mean, what happens then is you've got to make an offer you can't refuse by bumping up interest rates.
4: Well, Chrétien did something, and Mike, th- th- this is my take on it. He did something that I don't think the Trudeau government is even thinking or preparing to, to, to consider. He Put in a spending freeze with government. Spending freeze. I mean, can you imagine the Trudeau government? And we can get into what's impacting now and what the difference in impact is between 1993 and today and how much worse it is today. But can you even think of a spending freeze?
0: yeah but the interesting thing there, Mike, is they probably weren't thinking of it. They were forced to do it. Now I'll give you some examples. Look at uh, the reversal in so many of the climate change policies, and now you've got them asking for more coal as an example. Not just countries like India and China ramping up coal production, but they're literally you know being forced you know, as, as Great Britain did back it was well before the invasion back in uh, October saying, hey, ramp up our coal production. All I'm saying is the market forced reality forced that. So yeah, I don't think Mr. Kretchen came in office saying, you know what, I'm going to have a huge austerity program going here. But it was forced upon him by the event you were talking about. Hey, you got to be able to borrow the money at a reasonable price, or you better be able be able to change something else.
4: Mike, I want to get to where we are today, and maybe this will lead it into because where we are today is certainly significantly well, let's just say worse than it was back during the Cretian uh, 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 time. But prime rate, like we're watching interest rates go up, and the Wall Street Journal editorial infamously claimed bankrupt Canada had reached a debt wall. To course correct, Canada's prime rate jumped to seven and a half percent back then from five and a half percent that year on its way to nine percent. You bring those numbers out today and and people will think you're a heretic, like like (laughs) they would think you're crazy. But are these numbers out of reason, Mike?
0: Well, I think the challenge is, you know, as you say, that's 93. We had a different uh, level of debt. You know we're we're going to hit 1.4 billion a trillion sorry uh, coming up in this sort of budget cycle 1.4 trillion we're across the trillion dollar mark so can you imagine this I mean when you start bumping up a percent of interest rates you're going to add about 10 billion dollars in interest costs to the debt for every 1%. So it's a much more difficult sort of straitjacket situation. On the one hand, you got the central banks fighting inflation, obviously raising interest rates, but on the other, hey, not just individuals and not just companies who've gone into debt, but it's the government with records amount of debt. So that adds to the interest costs. I think it's a very difficult situation. Plus, one more thing, Mike, if the uh, Bank of Canada raises rates sufficiently or the Federal Reserve, and it sort of causes an economic slowdown, uh uh-oh, Government revenues go down to service that very debt. So this is why it's such a difficult situation.
4: Well, and that's just exactly where I want to take this, Mike, is if we get the interest rates going up and let's say some of the pundits are right about six percent or six and a half percent, never mind two and a half or three. What does that do to government servicing debt costs? I mean, that's just the, the government has to come up with that money.
0: Yeah, or they have to entice bond buyers potential it might be a pension fund, might be other institutions, individuals, but they this is the way inflation comes in. I mean, their problem right now and why they don't want inflation expectations is how do you sell a 5-year government a bond that I'll just pick a number, pays 3%, if we think inflation's going to run at 6 or 7? I mean, you're just guaranteed to lose money. That's the game they've got to play and that's why I think the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve both talk down interest rate inflation expectations the whole way. Oh, it's just transitory. Don't worry. That's another way of saying, go ahead, buy our five-year bond because, yeah, maybe this year's rough, but the next couple of years aren't. Well, now we see these incredible bond losses because, of course, as interest rates rise, the existing bond price goes down to compensate. Well, we got some huge losses. But yeah, I mean, you're doing a good job, Mike, of describing I I think the rock and the hard place that they're dealing with. And I don't I don't see, you know, they talk about a soft landing and we have an awful lot of analysts saying that's wishful thinking. But that's why they're talking about it. They can't afford to have a major economic uh, downturn or even a slowdown because they need the tax revenue. And as interest rates rise, as we said boy, the servicing of the debt goes up at the same time. So yeah, nothing good's happening here. Nothing good at
4: all. And uh, Canadian households are more prone now to live paycheck to paycheck. And we're house poor. Our mortgage rate, I I took a look at the mortgage rates. You're looking at mortgage rates that are well over double what they were just some months ago. And uh, it's gonna hurt Canadians. It's gonna hurt them a lot, but it's also gonna hurt, and I go back to this, government tax revenue Is there going to be, in your mind, a wake-up call for this government, or are they just going to carry on their merry way?
0: Well, they certainly have a different attitude about even anchoring the debt. You know, they didn't have for several years there what we call a debt anchor. At what point do you go back? You know, what point do you cut back spending? You know, what debt to GDP? They talked about it more in the last budget. But I'll tell you this. We'll leave it at this, Mike, because this is—let's leave it on a happy note. Because what is so ironic is what could bail them out in the short term? High oil prices. The most vilified commodity in this country. One that the government has been very clear they want to phase out, aggressively clear And yet, you know what? It's going to be adding both. Alberta's going to be a big winner. They're going to be in surplus in a single year, if you know what I mean. The turnaround there is unbelievable. But I'll tell you, the federal government's going to get a windfall in the billions of dollars over the next few years, tens of billions of dollars. That just may be enough to counterbalance what we've been saying.
4: Well, don't worry, Mike. They've got plans to spend it.
0: (laughs) There you go. Mike, go out and have a great Canada Day long weekend. You too, Mike. (laughs) Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, the candidate weekend's got to be the perfect time to discuss freedom and what separates democracies from totalitarian states. I think it comes down to the rights of the individual versus the state. I mean, things like private property rights or the presumption of innocence are key. But I suggest the foundation actually is free speech, the right to oppose and question government policies. Increasingly, or the increasing evidence in the form of legislation, is to censor, censor the internet, with the government deciding what constitutes misinformation, along with the growing attitude of no questions allowed for, I think, an increasing number of issues. and suggests that there are many, including in the federal government, who disagree with the premise of free speech. What's noteworthy, though, is that those systems that actually favor censorship, and inhibiting individual rights always and everywhere have proven inferior on every measure of quality of life. Yet we still got people, including in politics, who push in that direction. But setting the more lofty kind of debate aside, you know what the knockout blow is, though, in the battle between freedom, democracy, capitalism versus uh, restrictions of communism, that kind of thing, is the fact that no matter what the faults of, say, capitalist democracies You're not seeing citizens risk their lives to leave them or participating in a mass exodus to go to a totalitarian regime. We're not all loading up to go to Venezuela or, you know, you name it right now. But people literally do risk their lives to escape jurisdictions or uh, things like Venezuela and this former Soviet Union and Cuba. And that brings me to the shocking stat of the week. This is April alone. U.S. authorities recorded more than 35,000 Cuban nationals at the U.S. southwest border. That's almost as many as the entire 2021 fiscal year, uh, according to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Meanwhile, not a single report of a U.S. citizen looking to emigrate to Cuba. And as I say, that's the knockout punch. So much to talk about in a world that is so dominated by interest rate news. It's will they, won't they, how big is the next one, that kind of thing. Well, Ozzy Jurek's here with me, and you can find him at ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, before I get to uh, that, though, as you know, we did the Canada Day poll. I've been giving some of the results, but I know you don't know these ones. So I, I by this is something that people don't know about Ozzy Jurek. He's an internet DJ. Now, picture that. He wears hot pants, black socks and sandals, one of the most popular... He knows his music. So Ozzy, here we go. No right or wrong answer to these. though. we asked, though, what is, who was is Canada's best pop singer in history? And the, the choices we gave, and people were allowed to jump in others, uh, Justin Bieber, Celine Dion, Drake, Shania, Neil Young, and we had people write in, people like Anne Murray. Paul Anka got a few votes. I mean, it's shocking. Uh, and uh, Ryan Adams was in that group. So you go ahead. Who do you think was Canada's best pop singer? Broad category. Bachman Overdrive. That's a that's a group,
3: of the Tokes. That's a group. What <laughs> <I'm, laughs> oh, <the> a best singer! <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're doing. Brian. Brian. <clears throat> it, it's early in the morning. Brian Adams. Okay. Good stuff, Brian Adams.
0: And I think our survey said Shania Twain. There you go. But speaking of groups, I'll give you a chance to redeem yourselves. We gave people the cha- greatest Canadian rock band, Rush. Bachman Turner Overdrive, Tragically Hip, Arcade Fire, The Band, and people could throw in others. And there were a lot of others. I mean, we could have said Tom Cochrane for either one, though. Uh, just so many good Canadian. This is the one thing I always say that Canada hits way above its weight internationally when it comes to music. And this is just another example. So who was your choice there? You think
3: can can I use it now? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, bah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Jump the gun. Bah. Well, you know what? People agreed with you. That's who won it out. Oh. They're taking care of business, if I can use the cliche right away.
3: Exactly.
0: Anyways, I better get on to real estate with you. Ozzy, I want to just chat about uh, you know, a couple of things. And that is, I was going back to the World Outlook Conference. You know, it was the first week of February. And that's when we were first talking about a top out in the market. That you said, I'm worried about this. I think you know, we're sort of putting a top in place. And in that, in the, in the conference itself, I remember you put up a slide. And it said, you know, we should be raising some cash now. And for people 70 and over, you said about 50% should be in cash. I think for 60 and over, 40%. Uh, you know, but if you're under 40, go for it a little bit there. But what do you think now? I mean, things have obviously changed since then. You, you, we did get the top that you were worried about and predicted. But
3: what about now? Well, first of all, I should make clear I'm talking to the real estate investors. You know, I'm not talking to the homeowner. I mean, if you find a home you want to live in, you're going to be there in the next ten years. Don't worry about the markets. The key, though, as an investor, I, I find that too many people over 60 that they're out of money. They made a mistake. I think, as I said then and just on that slide, as you mentioned, once you're over 70, shoot 50% in cash all the time, and and so on and so on. Under 40, yes, go for the brass ring. You can make it again. But it's funny, I also have this message for a Vancouver right, that sits in a $2 million house and you're 65 years old. Sell! I mean, with that $2 million, you and I talked about it before, you are a multi-millionaire. You take a million, buy eight condos in Phoenix, you get about $100,000 um, uh, gross after taxes, you get about 75000 net. That's your income for the next 10 years. Then you go and one month to... Fi- to Thailand one month to the United States one month skiing and one month boating for about fifteen thousand a year. After ten years, you still have eight hundred fifty thousand dollars left of that cash, and that million dollar investment in the condos is now grown to a million and a half. You're actually better off not having worked. Took four months off every year, <laughs> and so look 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 at it yourself as a as an investor. But now something else is happening, and that is that I think all real estate investors should get into the cash in total for for the next four to six months.
0: And again, I want to emphasize, Ozzy's talking about real estate investors. He's not talking you and living in your home, you know, so we're not running out and selling uh, based on that. But Ozzy's point about there's better ways of doing it, but that it's an instant shift, Ozzy. I mean, it's obviously a shift when you say, let's get fully into cash now.
3: Well, the thing is, I firmly believe long-term Real estate is the place to be, always has been the place to be, and it will be. But we're sitting on the edge of a knife right now. We don't know what the federal government, the FEDs in the United States, is going to do. If they're going to really pull out all stops and stay with that increase in interest rates all the time, well, markets are going to go down further. Sales are dropping even more than you and I talked about. And But uh, there's also a possibility that the FED will do a pivot. In, in September because of the election, kind of going to say, you know what? We're not going to do this. We're a bit bombastic right now. Yes, this is what we're going to do. But then they won't. And they're going right back to printing, which is probably more likely when you consider the world is a wash in debt. And that's the only way to get paid, paid back is through inflation until you're sure it's a good thing to be on the sideline.
0: Okay, one more thing I want to throw at you. And that's because obviously with a rising interest rate environment, there's awful a lot of talk about people getting in trouble with the amount of debt they're carrying. But one of the points we've made on this show several times is if, when it comes to people's houses, Canadians do not default. They're not like the Americans because the rules are also different. Easier to walk away from a mortgage in the States. But I've seen that people would rather run up their credit card bills or borrow elsewhere, but
3: they're paying their mortgage. And it looks like that's been consistent. You are so right, Mike. And in fact, it's dramatically so. The statistics from the Canadian Bankers Association show that we have the lowest Default rate. Now think about it. Only 770 mortgages in arrears uh, out of 711,354 mortgages. They're just 0.11%. Now we're behind Ontario, which is 0.6, but everybody else is below a half a percent. So why our government is continuously worrying about us making our mortgage payments and making it more difficult to get? is beyond me when they allow us to pay 25% on our credit card. Well, the
0: good news, as I say, uh, people are responsible about their mortgage. That's good for Canada, good for the economy. And in the meantime, Ozzy, I've got to be clear, on when you put up the new OzBuzz, when's the
3: next one coming? On Monday next week, the AusBuzz is out to all subscribers that have signed in on AusBuzz.ca. Everybody else can see it online 10 days from now. And Mike, please remember this. Work is the curse of the drinking classes. There you go. Obviously, a a
0: shrinking uh, number when I look at the employment or people going looking for jobs. Ozzy, you go out and have a great
3: Canada Day weekend. And you and your listeners, too.
0: This is a great time of year for Victor Adair. He only gets about two days off a year, but we've got July 4th coming up, you know, July 1st. It's it's heaven for him, and I'm glad he's finding time for us on the Canada Day weekend. Vic, let me just start with, it's it's something that we've been talking about, but I can't believe this sort of teeter-totter in the market between the Fed's not going to follow through because we have a recession. Oh, there's not going to be a recession. So the Fed is going to follow through. It seems that depending on which day, probably. But, you know, for us, it's every week. We look at that and say, which one won out this week? It's a tug of war.
5: Yeah, well, Mike, we go back two weeks ago. The Fed uh, had their big meeting. They raised interest rates by 75 basis points. Uh, Chairman Powell used the term Unconditional when he was describing how hard they were gonna go after uh, fighting inflation. Well, in the real markets, uh, since then, in two weeks, the price for where the market expects short-term interest rates to be in March of next year has dropped by over three-quarters of a point. The yield on the 10-year bond has dropped from three and a half percent to below 3%. In other words, what the market is pricing here is they see that the call it the sentiment in the market has switched from the idea that we're faced with relentlessly rising inflation to the possibility, very real possibility, of a looming recession. That's the sort of the, the background to what's going on in the markets right now.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting what you tell me that. I just say the market clearly doesn't believe the chairman of the Federal Reserve. You know, it's the credibility issue because he's saying one thing and the market's saying, yeah, I don't think so.
5: You know, well, you know, Mike, but and and fair enough, um, you know, you you could say that nobody has a crystal ball. You know, the Fed was was, you know, woefully slow in changing their tune from transitory. And then, you know, they they went that way. You know, they are they admit, you know, they're just they're trying to follow the data. Well, the data is moving really fast these days. And so what's going to you know, I wrote in my blog this week and last week as well, something about, you know, if the Fed has got religion now and by religion, I mean, you know, they are going to be unconditional in their fight against inflation. What would cause them to change their minds? Certainly, you say, well, how about the stock market down 50 percent? Again, in in my blog, I've written that would the Fed be willing to throw the stock market under the bus? Well, yes, they have. Um, I think the key thing though, will be the unemployment rate. You know, we've had uh, unemployment rate come down to a very, very low level here. And it seems like there's nobody can find enough bodies to hire, to do the jobs that need to be done. And you look at the disaster, say in the airline industry, because there's shortages of bodies everywhere, that sort of thing. Uh, if we switch from, You know, jobs are just available all over the place to all of a sudden jobs are scarce and people are getting laid off. I think that would probably be the main thing that would cause the Fed to say, whoa, maybe we got to back off.
0: I'm really, with, I'm really with you on that, Vic. Uh, that's exactly what I think they're looking at is wages too. And But you're, you're right, this is a situation where, uh, you know, it's a puzzle to a lot of people. How come we can't find employees? And that's been a story now for the last two years, what happened to them. And some of the initial research I'm reading is saying, you know, some people just took early retirement or we're approaching retirement. We've been warned about that demographic time bomb for years. Others, but they don't have a full explanation. There hasn't been enough time to do enough research on it but it looks like where they're really having trouble is lower paying jobs to fill. And here's an interesting one. What a a kind of interesting study I read this week. It was because the level of education is rising. Like Canada is the most educated in terms of numbers of the G seven nation. And people aren't going to go down, you know, go down that income ladder or, uh, you know, or that work ladder to take those jobs. But I think you're just dead on That's what they're watching.
5: Yeah. Now to be clear, uh, What I've said here is, you know, the market's repricing in where they think rates are going to be. However, the market still is pricing, both in Canada and the United States, that the central banks will be increasing rates by about 125 basis points from where we are right now, between now and the end of the year. So just be clear on that. The forward markets got too far ahead of themselves, basically, and are correcting. Yeah, And again, just to emphasize, you're talking both the U.S. and Canada. They both
0: come up with that one and a quarter kind of percentage points between now and the end of the year. So I'm just saying the people on variable rate mortgages, for example, which they estimate is something like 24 percent of all mortgages are variable rate. Man, they're going to get another whack. You know, and those HELOC loans that are popular get another whack. So, yeah, not a case of being out of the woods at this point. But, yeah, U.S. and Canada, as you just said, one and a quarter percent more. So, yeah, that story still got a lot to play out. What about the commodity side of things, though, Vic? Uh, I, I keep seeing, you know, oil sort of reacted a little bit in the downside saying, hey, there's a recession, demand will go down. I I, I think that's a buying opportunity, but that's me personally. But the commodities, uh, you know, been the hottest sector in the market this year.
5: Well, Mike, this is really one of those cases of it depends on your time frame, and you're absolutely right. The commodities. Uh, let, let's look at the different sectors in the stock market. The commodity sector has been by far and away the hottest year to date, and you know the, the fundamental bullish story on the commodity side is supply shortages. Just you know, there's all kinds of variations of the story, but that's the nub of it, and. You know, you can't just go out and print oil, as the, some of the commodity bulls like to say. Well, of course you can't. But the, the the variability here from my side is when everybody and his dog believes a story, then, you know, it's it, there's a, a likelihood of it correcting. So we've seen, you know, a 25, 30, sometime better percent uh, correction in some of the hot oil and gas stories that, that were, you know, that, that, where the markets have been driven higher by this idea that holy mackerel, there's just not enough to go around and people are going to have to pay up like crazy to get it. So I think with the general shift in the market to a more bearish zone, the stock market, people that have done really well in the, in the uh, energy space probably said, hey, why don't we sell some of those things and lock in some profits because things are going to look a little little tough going forward here.
0: Now, always an important point, though, Vic, is the internals of the market because people want sort of simplistic explanations, uh, you know, what changed. Well, a lot of it has to do, as you always talk about, the internal dynamics. Somebody just simply said, you know what, I made enough money. I mean, Ozzy and I were talking about that earlier in the housing market. Hey, there's nothing wrong, you know, at the Outlook conference, he said take 50% off the table if you're getting older, you know, right now. And there's so that happens all the time within that dynamic. Uh, but I guess the, the big challenge, as I say, and I, I love your point about the time frame, it's just really key, you know, for people that things can uh, happen in a shorter term, but that doesn't derail the long term kind of scenario out there. Like, I, I see nothing that solves the structural problem of oil. In fact, I think it's far worse than we're hearing. I want to put that on record. Write it down. Mike Campbell says it's far worse than they're hearing. They have made the biggest policy mistake of my lifetime because of the reverberations. Uh, I, I look longer term to see oil at silly prices. But that's
5: just me. But yeah, you're looking within the month, you know, within the week, within the day. Uh, I, what What I look at is what I think will happen as opposed to what I think should happen. You know, that's kind of the basis of my trading. And I mean, I, I I get hopes and dreams, and you know, I bang my hip fist on the table and say, "What are those idiots doing? Don't they know this should blah blah blah?" Like like I, I can go there. Uh, sure, that there is a very powerful narrative on you know shortages in oil. That's that's what's taken us you know to where we are here. I just think the market on a short term was vulnerable to, to correction, and that's what we had. And I, I agree, and I think that's what people have to be aware of.
0: But speaking of that, Vic, I think people should go to victoradare.ca. I hope they will. And I hope you should have a great weekend uh, here. You get Monday off because there'll be no U.S. trading. Well, you, I don't know. You'll
5: have to let us know next week. Thanks, Vic. I, I hate long weekends. I mean, they really they really screw me up. I, I kind of lose all my sense of rhythm and all that. Uh, but yeah, I, I'll, I'll try to struggle through this one.
0: Okay, there you go. Victor Victor victoradare.ca. Hey, still got a Goofy for you. Stay with us. Time now for the Canada Day Weekend Goofy Award. You know, when you hear stories about the incredible delays happening at Canada's airports, we were talking a little bit earlier with that, Peter Brown, with over, what was it, 54% of the flights are delayed, 12% outright cancelled, and people are experiencing it personally right now. I'm hearing from them. Some are camping overnight at some passport offices. You know what's incredible? Those government officials seem surprised that post-pandemic travel is picked up. After all, they've only had 10 months to observe the trend. I mean, they were warned, warned by immigration refugees and Citizenship Canada, who in their 2022-23 departmental plan clearly stated in quotes, forecasts predict that a recovery to pre-pandemic COVID demand will begin in the spring of 2022. Yet nothing was done by Service Canada. Same outcome when the unions representing the passport staff warned over a year ago to be prepared for a big jump in applications once travel restrictions were lifted. You know, back in October last year, a statement from Employment and Social Development Canada read in quotes, as travel restrictions are lifted, Service Canada is preparing for an increase in demand for passport services. You know what? But somehow it seems like only the minister's Responsible and their staff were taken by surprise in the surge of applications. I mean, when it comes to long delays, the massive lineups in some centers, let's not lose sight of the other analysis that finds that while demand for passports has significantly increased, it's still fifty five percent of the volume that was handled pre-pandemic. So what's happened? Well, here's a guess: A Blacklocks report that there's twenty six thousand one hundred thirty six employees at Service Canada Agency that handles passport applications. Are you ready? 18,362 are working from home. It's not a a stretch to suggest that may help explain why there are huge lineups at the offices with 70% of the staff at home. One thing for sure is that nobody's taking responsibility. You know, it reminds me, one of the great conversations I've had over the last year and a bit was Karen Hogan, the Auditor General. She told us on this show that when she looks at programs, all forms of responsibility and accountability are leave the room as soon as more than one department gets involved. No one takes responsibility. That's exactly what's happened here. Now, on the bright side, hey, maybe not getting your passport is one way to avoid the flight cancellations and lost luggage. Those are the chief characteristics of air travel in Canada today, because you can't travel. Okay, pardon the sarcasm, but it's a bit much. And one more goofy part. After over two months of passport chaos. I mean, this was first reported, you know, well over, you know, two months ago. Well, the federal government's finally taking charge. At least they want you to think they are. Did you hear they've created a special task force? Let's call it a blue ribbon panel to look into passport delays. Come on, don't laugh. Maybe they can do for passport delays what they've done for clean drinking water in some First Nations reserves. On a serious note, when I hear the task force co chair, she's Woman and Gender Equality Minister, Marcy Ian, declare in quotes, I want Canadians to know that we're there for them. We're there with them. And we'll get to the bottom of this. There for them? We're there with them? Really? First of all, do you think there's a single member of parliament who's waiting for a passport? But when I hear that kind of boilerplate, I just roll my eyes. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I'm sure she's a nice, decent person. But she might as well be saying blah, blah, blah. Blah because for many ca- Canadians, that's what it's come to. We simply don't trust the government to be able to deliver timely, cost-effective service. Hey, look, that's all the time we have today. Well, I'm glad you've been with me today. And uh, I hope you are enjoying this time. Maybe we get some great summer weather across the country. I know some parts have, other parts haven't. And you get a chance to think about this great country of ours. And no, I'm, not, I'm unapologetic Yes, there are things in our past, but I'm unapologetic. We live in a terrific country. We've been very blessed to be here. But I also remind you, hey, you can go online. I'll show you all the results of the Canada Day poll. Lots of fun stuff about what's our best Olympic moment, best sports moment, you know, top uh, actor, that kind of stuff. I'll put it all together if you've missed any of it. But in the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week.